0: big events, big stories, big God. In a world where chaos reigns, in a time when people are losing hope, one God stands up and declares His intention to be in relationship and to work in and through us. This summer, saddle up and be amazed as you see our God at work throughout history. And be reminded that history is still being written. Next week, we start our summer blockbuster series. We've got Jerry Bruckheimer in to do special effects. There will be explosions of plenty. There will be visions of the supernatural. We are going to see God through a number of stories throughout there. And they are, well, honestly, I, I grew up in kind of a place where church was always supposed to be proper. I like to have a little bit of fun, and so we're going to have a little bit of fun telling some stories about what God has done in the past. We're going to learn from those and hopefully smile a little bit as we come through that. Now, today we are in the final episode of Views from the J Train. Now, um, I'm going to show my age here a little bit if I ask the question, have you ever made a mixed tape? Those of you who had, this is a badge of honor, right? Like, yeah, you're darn right. Sure, kids make their playlists today, but it ain't no mixtape. When the mixtape happened, there was no other way to get music from different artists in one place unless you got those orders from KTEL, right? They had the the records that were on and you could order them. They never had all the songs that you wanted, but a mixtape was a way that you could... Put together stories, and if you had someone special in your life, the real gift of love was a mixtape just for you. And so, yeah, I made some mixtapes for Cheryl, it was a true bond of our relationship. They were beautiful, and they had to have good names on them as well, so I can remember. Ten um, cents is less than a dime, and non-euphonious white noise. These were crafted by hand from the heart, and all that to say, the Bible is not an album, all right? It's a collection by a various group of artists. And so often, because we see that there's one binding, we say, well, the Bible is a book, and that's not a good way to understand what it is. It is a compendium. It is a put-together kind of thing. And so, we like to make sure we drive that home, because when people are upset, with Christians or they disagree, they quite often say, the Bible is this and the Bible is that. And we we use it as if it's an entity and and, and not a set of individual historical manuscripts that have been bound together for convenience and through through the tradition of the church. It's a gift from God, yes, but not a single volume. So, this is part of our the, the, this overarching story. Remember we started and we said there was going to be a big story arc? That's part of the understanding. As we look at the Bible, we need to understand what this gift is that we've been given so that we hold it appropriately and wisely. That's going to lead me right now to the whole J fiasco. I mean, I went and I based this whole series that we're doing on the idea that there's a bunch of people whose names all start with J. The letter J is so important, but it does highlight one of the things that we need to be aware of as Christians living now. Um, It's an issue that we have, um, and we call it ethnocentrism. And what I mean by that is we favor our own ethnicity. We favor our own cultural understanding. Um, When we read the Bible, we want it to make sense to me like it was written for me. It's a gift from God to me, right? That means it should use the same language that I do in the same way that I mean to, right? And that's not the way it works. For our best understanding, we need to read, to strive to read with an awareness that there was an original audience. Yes, it's for you. But not everything was to you. There was a guy sometimes whose name was written on the outside of the envelope. That's who it was too. So we need to understand that there was a, an original audience, that there were original circumstances that were going on, and there was an original cultural context. And all that thing helps to give us understanding so that we can pull out appropriate things and not misappropriate texts. Jesus, for example, is the name. It's written as the Greek translation. It came through transliteration. Jesus is the Greek form of the word, the Hebrew word, Joshua, the Hebrew name Joshua. When Joshua is actually Yeshua. So that whole J thing, right there, is a problem because all kinds of the characters that I told you have names that start with J, they have names that start with J in English. It's important to be aware of this. When we say that the name of Jesus is above every name, we don't just mean J-E-S-U-S because His name in His context where He lived was actually Yeshua. And we make it sound like no one has ever had the name of Jesus, but all kinds of people had the name of Joshua. So when we say He has the name above every name, it's, a, it's about who He is. The title that He carries, not so much His given name, name. There's no magic in the word Jesus. There's power in the person of Jesus. We need to make sure we keep those things separate and distinct. So, like like if in Russian we would use the, the name Ivan or Ivan, that would be translated or transliterated into English as John. It's a name, but it doesn't sound the same in every language. So it's just important that we get that. So even though I've been harping on the J's, don't worship J, okay? It was just a way to tell a story. Um, So it's important. Uh, We have sections that we looked at. So we looked at Scripture. It's broken up into two major sections. You know, there's one that's called the old, and there's the new, right? uh, Marginal. Marginal at best. Um, Testament is another word for what? This is a harder one. Testament is another word for? Come on, be bold. Covenant, absolutely. <laughs> we say testament. That's what's written down in our book, and that's more from the Latin. So again, we get these language differences, and it impacts the way that we hear those words. So when we say Old Testament, we think that somehow that's, that's a magical Bible term. But what we really want to understand is that's the Old Covenant. We call that... Um, Sometimes the Jewish Scriptures, that's what they are. And then we call the New Testament or the the New Covenant. It's important to separate those things. They're not just blocks of writing. They're a group of documents that support a covenant. And Jesus, when He was here at the end, He made absolutely clear, this is the New Covenant. And we don't discard Either covenant, but we have to hold them in understanding. So, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is divided up into a number of sections. We have the Torah, which is also called the law. We have the writings, and we have the prophets. In that, we see different genres. Remember, we talked about genres. The way that you read the words depends on the genre that you're in so that you have the correct understanding. So, Old Testament, in those different sections, we will have narrative, it's telling a story. There is the wisdom literature, and in wisdom literature, we see poems we see poetry, we see songs. They're a different genre. And then there's prophetic writings as well. Then in the New Testament, we have what we talked about last episode, gospel. There are four gospels, and today I'm going to introduce you to the epistles. But First, our timeline. We're going to jump back to Jesus born about 3 B.C. Then the rest of these guys don't have any dates attached to them. This is going to be something that's going to maybe blow your mind a little bit. And there are question marks in here because there's a little bit of a maybe in here. um, These these are not the, the hard and fast ones. But after Jesus, we have James, the brother of Jesus. We've got Jude the brother of Jesus. We've got Joseph, the brother of Jesus. These are speculated um, brothers that he has. We follow along and we'll hear about James, and there's more than one James, so this one is called James the Greater, and he has a brother named John. Those are the sons of Zebedee. Um, John, Now, James is actually executed by Herod, Herod, Herod Agrippa by the sword. He's the only apostle whose martyrdom is actually recorded in the New Testament, claimed fame for him. Uh, There's also James the Less, possibly the brother of Matthew. Then there's Judas, son of James, a.k.a. Thaddeus. Then there's Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon Iscariot, notorious for the kiss, for the betrayal of Jesus to the temple priest for 30 silver coins. Then he goes on after he betrays Jesus to hang himself, and his place is later filled by Matthias. And you go, all these names, that's fantastic. But here's the honest question, or maybe it's just telling the truth. Do you think if we were to give you a sheet of paper that you could write down the 12 apostles? I mean, there's some of them that come pretty fast, right? But can you get to 12? And I think that if we were as a group, maybe... Maybe we could hit 12, but you're going to be expecting me to know them all really well, like they're all my best friends or whatever. But there are 12. Um, Few of us tend to know who they all are. And you'll be surprised, I'm betting, by the names of the people that are here. Hard-pressed to come up with all 12, but we have a friend. Our friend is named Luke. And Luke that dude loves, loves, loves details. And so, if we turn to Luke, we can get some answers here. But listen to the names that are in here. Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray, and He spent the night praying to God, because that's how He rolls when a big decision has to be made. Thirteen, when morning came, He called His disciples to Him, and He chose twelve of them whom He also designated apostles. Fourteen, Simon, whom He named Peter, his brother Andrew, and then James and John, also brothers, Philip, Bartholomew, 15, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, another one, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, Judas, Iscariot, who became a traitor. So imagine, imagine being Judas, son of James, right? Are are, are you Judas the Apostle? And they go, oh, yeah, but not that one, right? <laughs> like, it's Judas, but... And all of a sudden, his name that he'd have for his whole life becomes like this heavy burden for the rest of his life. I think I've heard of you. You're the Judas guy, right? So when you are dreaming of a little baby that you're going to have someday, a little boy's name, you are not thinking of Judas. You are not doing it. It doesn't matter anyone else who's been named Judas. And I'll tell you what, you don't care at all about Judas, the hammer Maccabees, the Jewish priest who led the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucid Empire, 167 to 160 BC. You don't care. You don't care that he liberated Jerusalem, that he purified the temple, that he restored temple service on December 14th, 164 BC. You don't care about that. You don't even care that the celebration of the reconsecration of the temple became a permanent Jewish holiday that is known as Hanukkah. That's right. You don't care. All you care is that you're never going to call your little boy Judas. Doesn't matter who any other Judas is. So many J's, so many Judases, and yet there's only one that really gets remembered. We get James. Another J. Yes, another James, a different James. Not that James, the other James. Not James the apostle, but now James the brother of Jesus. Not a believer in Jesus until after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That changes his mind. mind too. As a side note again, Do you realize, I hope it's become evident, how many names are repeated? Okay, count them up. Count up the Marys, the Johns, the Jameses, and even the Judases, right? There's Josephs and there's Joshua's. This is actually, fun point, an inherent proof of the validity and the historicity of the writings that are found in the New Testament especially. Who on earth if you were making up a fiction, would be naming so many key characters in your story the same name. You wouldn't do it. It's just mind-bendingly confusing to get them all straight. And that's because these people actually had these actual names. Right? They were popular names in the first century. These were highlighted names in the first century Jewish baby name book. Right, These are the big names. Start calling your kid these things. So there's still more J's in the timeline. We've got Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin. He requested the body of Jesus from Pilate. And he laid Jesus' body in his own tomb. There's James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the epistle, the letter, that also became known as James. Not really creative when it comes to naming these things. Uh, so the new genre today is the epistle, which is a fancy word to say letter. The epistles are scriptures. They're written in the form of a letter. Letters take up fully half of the New Testament, and they, uh, they describe relationship, right? As we read, it's important to consider that who the authors are uh, – what the recipients were getting, the reason, what, with the reason they got the letter, wh- why did the author choose to write to them? Those are important things as you're l- reading those letters. So some letters were written specifically to an individual. Others were meant to be read aloud as sermons to entire churches and then passed on to another church. Twenty-one epistles written by six authors. The, apostle, or the epistles by author, we start with Paul. No epistle named Paul. Right? No book of the Bible named after the guy, uh, which is kind of remarkable given the Bible naming plan plan that we've seen in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Here they are, uh, not in chronological order, but in um, length Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Thank you very much. Then Peter, he goes on to write. 1st and 2nd Peter. No creativity there at all. Then James. Guess what James calls his? James. James. Yeah. Brilliant. John. 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John. Jude. 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 Yeah. Then Hebrews is written by Anonymous. You're right. I mean, it just flows exactly the way that we're used to. Um, Those are the epistles. Now, I want to tell you a little bit of a story that's not really epistle related, but it's J-related. So we got Judas and we got Jesus. And today is all about who betrayed who. So we got two stories that are running parallel. There's at least two different ways that you can uh, see and understand what's happening in Jesus' ministry. There is the Judas version, which honestly is a lot like our version. Uh, That's what's happening. And then there's the Jesus version of what is happening as well. So many of the stories, uh, personal profiles, the events that happen throughout Scripture, uh, they give us the opportunity to use Scripture as a mirror for ourselves. We can put our, ourself in and imagine our own version of what is happening. So we ask a lot of questions. How do we relate to what is going on? Not just what did those people do? How, do, how would I do it? What, what, what do our responses look like? When Jesus says, this is what you should do, What what What's our response? Who who would we be siding with if we were there with Him in the development of the story as we saw it progressing? Who, Who would we follow? What would we have seen had we been there, walking step by step with Jesus? How would we have seen what He was doing? These are good questions to ask yourself. What do we choose now as we are walking in step with the Holy Spirit of Jesus? What do we choose now? Which version of the story are we living? So, do do you see it like Judas saw it? Or do we see it as Jesus revealed it? And it's a really good idea to be honest. Mark 8, 27, Jesus and His disciples, they went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, He asked them, "'Who do people say I am?' Right? This is the same thing that was going on last episode. We talked about this with John the Baptist. The priests want to know who John said he was. But now John, John the Baptist, John and not Apostle John, has been added to the multiple choice drop-down list. John could now be added because something bad happened. It's the death of John the Baptist. It happened around 30 A.D. or Mark chapter 6, verse 17, Tetrarch Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, has John decapitated. But now people are feeling like his vibe is coming back. And so Jesus asked his closest followers, who do people say I am? Verse 28, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, just like we heard last episode. Others say one of the prophets for the same reasons. Verse 29, but how about you? What about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And that's it right there. That is, that is the question. As a Christian, you are going to experience regularly people who, let's be charitable and say they don't understand life the same way you do. They haven't had the same experience with Jesus. They haven't had the same experience with Scripture. They ask you questions. Tell, tell me, what, what about... Come on, Noah, seriously? Adam and Eve? Honestly, you don't believe that, do you? We say, you know what? The first question you have to answer. Before before we deal with textual criticism, before we deal with historical arguments, the first question that we as a Christian, we don't worship a book. We worship God, a risen Savior, a man. God brought to earth in the form of a man. That's who we focus on. So the first question that's most important to us that any other question comes from later. The first question is, who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? You can know the books of the Bible. You can quote all kinds of things all you want. Until you settle, who do you say Jesus is? The the, the rest of it's just distraction. Peter. Peter answered, You are the Messiah. That's Hebrew. If we were going to Greekify it, we might say, You are the Christ. You are the Chosen One. You are the Savior. Peter is given a gift by the Holy Spirit of clarity because of all the things that he's grown up with, because of the culture that he was in because of the education that he'd had, and then because he had been with Jesus. Week after week, day after day, he's there. He watches it. He sees what's happening, and he hears these, in his world, mind-blowing statements that Jesus is making. He's going like, I never thought of it that way. No one I know ever thought of it that way. But he's been with Jesus, and now he has this moment. You are the Messiah. Church Online, Church on Main Street, it doesn't matter if you say that you have been a Christian for 50 years or five minutes or you're still seeking. The most significant question you can wrestle with to have assurance for yourself is who do you say Jesus is? Everything else follows after that. We say it in a different way. Like in, in terms of living, we say Jesus first, everything else after, right? Because this is the central part of what we believe. Who do you say Jesus is. Who do you say I am? This is what Jesus is asking His apostles. The single greatest question to answer for yourself, the one that will be most transformative in your faith. It is your base. It is the concrete block. It is the brick that you start from, and everything else builds on that. Everything else is after that. Who do you say Jesus is? And I'll be honest, because I was in this boat we like to hide behind other people's analysis and not claim our own. You know what somebody, somebody wrote? And we can poke holes in things from a distance. We can avoid the commitment of saying, this is who I believe Jesus is. It's easy to do that. You say, well, so-and-so wrote this, and so-and-so has wrote that. So these are different thoughts. And you go, they absolutely are. Who do you say? Because you're quoting of Aristotle. You're quoting of the new atheists, you're quoting even other biblical authors, until it is your thought, your word, your belief, your understanding, do the research, read it, read it all, but until you answer the question, it doesn't matter for you. It's just conceptual. It's not fully relational. Who do you say? I am. And this is the big question for Judas too. A really big question for Judas. Judas stands out here. Sometimes we make it sound like, and he was totally different than anyone else. Nobody was like Judas. Judas Judas was a bad guy. But I think Judas had the same view as many of the other apostles, and certainly many of the other people who lived in that time. Judas is trying to figure it out. I've been with him a bunch. I heard stuff. There was enough that made me say, I want to be in. Right? I love what he's doing. I've seen what he does. And it. I can't explain it. He's got strong feelings, and I think he's looking for that one last piece of evidence. It's just not quite adding up enough the way that he wants it to add up. He, he already has the answer to the equation, and so he, he needs enough other information to get to the answer that he would like, not to the answer that is actually there. He wants to be justified in believing what he believes. He's already chosen a path, and Jesus is not following that same path. And we have a lot of the same words being used here because... Judas has got expectations. And he's sorting out the benefits, right? And Jesus is talking about the benefits. He, this is what it's like to have a relationship with God. And, and Judas is trying to clarify authority. Where is the power? Who's in charge of this? And Jesus is trying to explain what authority looks like and, and how you work in partnership with the Father. He's looking to clarify that. And Jesus talks a lot about establishing the kingdom. And Judas goes, yeah, exactly. It's time to establish or Re-establish the kingdom and we're kind of using the same words but it's like that scene from princess bride right i don't think that word means what you think it means they're talking about the same words but their definitions are entirely different judas is saying what about establishing the kingdom and jesus is saying let's establish the kingdom same words entirely different definitions so we keep using those same words, but they just don't seem to line up. When, when I hear you say that, in my mind, that means this, this, and this. This is incredibly significant if you're not making the connection to the world that we live in right now. What do we believe about the kingdom of God and God being in charge when it comes to politics? Politics when it comes to our voting, when it comes to what we believe people should believe. This understanding of kingdom matters. It mattered to Judas and it mattered to Jesus and it matters to us. And we have to decide who we believe Jesus is because that impacts how we see that kingdom coming. And it's critical right now that we have an understanding of the Judas version of what the kingdom looks like and the Jesus version of what the kingdom looks like. Same words, not the same place. So Jesus, Jesus and Judas, they have the same concept, but they are entirely different world views. Both are thinking, uh, expressing ideas about overcoming. What are we overcoming? We're looking at victory. Victory over what? And we're looking at conquering. And those words, same words, entirely different meanings that shape the kingdom that you believe is coming. And Judas is watching Jesus. I heard you talk about conquering. I heard you talk about overcoming. I heard you talk about victory, and that's right. It's time that Rome gets out of here. It's time that the Jewish power comes back in. Yes, Jesus, I'm totally on board with exactly what you're saying. And Judas is looking at Jesus, but it's unmet potential. I hear what you're saying, but we're not getting it yet because I'm waiting I'm waiting to get it. Get it as in understand it, but get it as in receive it as well. And Jesus, Jesus is watching Judas, and not just Judas, He's watching the other apostles as well. And He's saying, are you picking up what I'm putting down? Are you understanding the enormous revolution that I am revealing? And He sees lots of unmet potential doesn't walk away. He doesn't give up. He says, I will stay there. I will be with you until the very end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But we're not there yet. You're still thinking of this kingdom. And I've been working so hard to describe a kingdom that you can't understand. I'm trying to flesh it out for you. But you just don't see it. Because your word kingdom only means one thing. And you're locked on that definition. So there's motivation. Both of them are looking at the word motivation. And this, why? And Judas is looking at Jesus and he's saying, I don't understand. What is, what's holding you back, Jesus? Why won't you commit? Why won't you commit? So Ju- Judas, I think, I think that we could say that Judas helped At least that would be Judas's language. Judas helped Jesus to step forward. So he said, let's remove the uncertainties now. How do we do that? How do we jumpstart the kingdom as Judas sees it? How do we jumpstart that kingdom thing? And so Judas says, you know what we should do? We should offer confrontation. I've been with Jesus for years. I've seen what He can do. I've seen it in other people's faces. I've seen... um, the wounded. I've seen the lame. I've seen the blind. I've seen them healed. I've seen the impossible made possible. I've seen the power of God Himself. I see the, the, the sea that got calm. I've seen that. I've been there. What I need to do is to draw out the Messiah. Enough of the Wearing your hood and staying in the shadows, Jesus. It's time for you to stand out and stand up. I'm going to help you be the conqueror that we all know you want to be so that the kingdom will be released. And so he works to get, I'm hypothesizing, okay? Why did Judas do what he did? I can't tell you exactly. Scripture says that the devil entered him, he did something that was not right. But the why, I think there's a why in here. That maybe Judas, we'll start with maybe, okay? Maybe Judas said, I'm going to get him arrested. And when I get him arrested, I'm going to unleash the beast. That's what I want. Judas had been there for, like I said, three years. He's been watching the whole thing. Now, I want you, Jesus, to do what I want you to do. I want the kingdom to come. I've been praying for it for my whole life. I'm going to poke the bear. I'm going to give us the hulk. Come on, stop holding back, Jesus. Let's just take the kingdom. It's ours right now. No one can stand against your power. Let's do it. Jesus is too slow to act, right? We entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and everyone's out. Everyone is psyched. They are motivated. They are vocal. They are pumped. We can take this momentum, Jesus. We've got it. We've got rhythm. We've got power. We can rally these people. And Judas misunderstood Jesus entirely. Betrayal. Who betrayed whom? Judas feels like he just gave three years of his life to a goal that now will never be met. How about the rise of the state of Israel, Jesus? What about the return to prominence of the kingdom of God's people? Did he betray Jesus because he got mad at Jesus? Or did he betray Jesus to spark him? But the plan of God goes straight through this tragic betrayal of Judas to the temple. The betrayal did not thwart the plan, it just produced the pathway. That pathway, that road trip, leads to someplace far better than just some temporary political regime or political region. That pathway leads to its intended end where it always meant to go. It's bigger, and it's far more impressive than Judas could have ever imagined, even than we still to this day can imagine. That road leads us to our final genre, apocalyptic, Apocalyptic literature is scripture that describes what the future, what the end times will be like. This genre uses symbolic language and it uses numbers, it uses word pictures, and it uses images that often seem strange to us. In the Old Testament, apocalyptic literature, you can sometimes find it mixed with narrative and it makes it confusing, it makes interpretation difficult. Old Testament apocalyptic literature can be found in the prophets primarily. Parts of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, we talked about Joel and his looking forward to the future, Zechariah, and Daniel. Oh, definitely Daniel. It's in there. The New Testament apocalyptic literature, you can find it in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Revelation. Oh yeah, it's in there. The end of the road trip is full victory. The same word that Judas was thinking of. John was given a glimpse into this future. Here's just a tiny sliver of what he saw. Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, when we hear that, when we read that, we want to take all those words to mean exactly what they say, right so we're sort of thinking that John is live tweeting a video that, that God has given to him, and he's just t- this is exactly what's going on, right? There are pictures and there are impressions, but when you come to the ter- term there was no longer any sea, it doesn't mean that the ocean went away. it doesn't mean that there's no bodies of water anymore. Apocalyptic literature frequently. Uses an ancient literature as well. Uses the term "sea" to describe uncertainty, confusion, and conflict. The sea was an untamed beast. If you went out there, the weird things happened on the sea. Storms come from the sea. Ships sink on the sea. Waves can't be stopped. They can't be controlled. The sea describes unsettledness. So, in here, we're hearing about peace. Not the lack of war. The presence of Christ. Peace. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Symbolic language. John did not see Jerusalem in a bride's dress. That's not what was happening there right? It's a picture. It's describing the relationship. The church has always been called the bride of Christ. The bridegroom is Christ. It is a union that comes together. Pictorial language. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Speaking again of relationship, proximity, closeness. The idea that God has been separate is over and God has come. (coughs) This is good news. Our Savior, our champion, our God in our midst, no longer feeling distant. Verse 4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And in that beautiful picture, we don't imagine the entire population of the world weeping. God walking around to every single person individually with a tissue Wiping away their tears. That is not what is being described, but the cause of crying, the cause of pain, the cause of tears, all those things have been transformed. It will be a remade world where those things no longer reign and rule because Jesus conquered death, bringing about life. Jesus was, Jesus is and Jesus will be victorious Amen. completely his desire and plan is that you would live in that victory now and forevermore but that you would start now and that's where we are following Jesus to when we describe following Jesus that is the destination that we follow <coughs> Jesus to to himself and then What is the end of the grand story arc started in Genesis, ending in Revelation? That's where we're going. And we believe that the resurrected Savior is the one who makes it possible. But if He was resurrected, then so shall we. And so, when Jesus says, fear not, He means, I'm there I conquered death, and death is our number one fear. You don't have to worry. The story arc takes you to victory that cannot be challenged, that that cannot be overwhelmed. That is the story arc that we are on. That is the road trip that we together are on in earnest pursuit of Jesus who draws us together into one. And in that pursuit, we find hope and we find freedom and the love of Jesus. That's why into one, we do what we do. And that's why we call you to trust that you might follow as we go in pursuit of Jesus. Come with us kind Father, I thank You for the revelation of Scripture, the revelation, the special revelation of Jesus Himself, exposing who You are and what You are like so that the misconceptions can be put aside. We know what You look like because we have experienced Jesus. We have written accounts. We have eyewitness accounts of who Jesus was, who Jesus is. And in that, we find hope to follow. So speak to us today, Lord Jesus, I pray, that You might speak through us later. Fill us with the hope that only You can bring. Empower us by Your Holy Spirit to live in such a way that we will be in earnest pursuit, that we will be in the midst of the transformation by the renewing of our minds, that we would be in connection, in partnership, and on mission with You wherever we go, whoever we are with. Lord Jesus, thank You for the gifts that You have given to us. Thank You for the story that we are a part of. Thank You for loving me enough to see me as I am and to forgive me. For my friends here offered the same gift, a gift of grace, amazing grace. That's who our God is. So as we go today, Lord Jesus, I pray that once again we would be forced to answer for ourselves in our own world, words, who do we say Jesus is? And use that as the launch point for the rest of our days. Who do we say you are? Speak to my friends this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.